0: Hello and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 61. So I've had a bit of a last-minute change of plans on this one. did have a group of friends organised to do a discussion show about um, the culture of metal gigs, but uh, with de- de- developments in the past week or so, that is obviously not going to happen. One, because we can't get together in a room, and two, because talking about gigs at this point in time is probably kind of insensitive. So I've switched gears and had to come up with an episode I could do on fairly short notice. So I'm going to be looking at discography of a band I know Inside Out. It's probably one of the most popular and influential bands from the early death metal movement, uh, Morbid Angel. Uh, for this episode, I'm probably going to be using quite a bit as a source, Choosing Death, the book by Decibel Editor Albert Madrain, um, as well as obviously your usual metal archives and YouTube. So Morbid Angel were formed in 1983 by teenage friends George Emanuel III and Mike Browning. George was playing guitar, Mike Browning doing drums. The band initially went by the name Ice, but very quickly changed that to Heretic, and then later finally settled the name Morbid Angel when they found out another band had already gotten to Heretic. Uh, George also quickly renamed himself Trey Exagfoth. I think that's how you say it. It's a, it's a difficult one uh, because he felt his name sounded a bit too posh. Uh, Trey being a reference to the third, and Agzagfof. Ag-Zag-f- yeah, I'll go with that. Um, this is a quote from Choosing Death. A blind, mad god of abomination, often referred to as the Lord of Chaos. So, for those of you familiar with Morbid Angels Output, a very fitting name for that band. Um, These two went through a fair few early incarnations of the band, uh, eventually teaming up with other very talented lead guitarist, Richard Brunel and John Ortega on bass. They put out a few demos, like, sort of very early on in their career, "Scream forth Blasphemies, Bleed for the Devil, Total Hideous Death... All these demos contained material that would eventually make it onto to their proper first album, Alters of Madness. At this point in time, uh, drummer Mike Browning was also doing vocals. This incarnation of the band went into studio to attempt to record their debut album, The uh, Abominations of Desolation. For whatever reasons, the band were never satisfied with the sound. Particularly Trey really didn't like how it sounded. He also thought um, some of Mike's drum performances were lacking in certain ways. Uh, so, essentially, uh, there was a falling out, I think something to do with uh, uh, Mike's girlfriend at the time, and Mike was fired or quit the band, and he went on to form Nocturus, who are a really interesting group, he, him also drumming and doing vocals for that, one of the first death metal bands to incorporate keyboards as a major element. Their first two albums, uh, uh, The Key and Thresholds, are absolutely fantastic. But yeah, so this left uh, Morbid Angel in a bit of an awkward position, because at this point the band sort of split in half, bass player also left. So they befriended Dave Vincent, who was also a bass player slash vocalist, and managed him for the band. And after doing a demo with Dave Vincent's friend on drums um, Wayne Hartsell, like Wayne would soon quit the band but they then recruited um, the then terrorizer drummer Pete Sandoval so if you've heard uh, terrorizers well first album now uh, world downfall you'll know like At that point in time, they were doing some seriously punishing and complex music with some very impressive drum stuff going on. But for whatever reason, that band were never quite that serious. They weren't practicing that regularly. So... Dave and Trey were able to convince Pete to move move away from uh, Terrorizer and come join Morbid Angel. So this is around 1987. At this point in time, the band are all living together in Tampa, Florida. They're sharing one house and sort of reintroducing death. It seems like a lot of what they did was they worked just down the road, like washing cars and that kind of stuff, and would just do their job for eight hours, come home, and play for seven or eight. They they seemingly. Were able to get away with making a lot of noise in that house and pete who had just comes join them just came down and tried to improve himself and become ridiculously fast like at this point in time they were very much into the idea of pushing the boundaries of how fast and technical they could make music trey getting really out there with his ideas for how how to solo and uh, also R- richard bernalva is doing some really impressive stuff Dave Vinson really pushing things in terms of, like, just getting a really brutal attack on his vocals. But apparently, when Pete first joined, he didn't actually play Double Kick. So, I don't know if that means there's no Double Kick on um, on uh, World Downfall, the, the Terrorizer album. But so, he, when he came to hang out with Morbid Angel, he had to learn that, and through tutoring from Trey and David and what they wanted him to do... Uh, He just put in the hours and hours of work. Apparently, while everyone else was at work, he'd just be down in their basement playing drums for like hugely long sessions, like such an incredible pace. But all this work sort of paid off. uh, And in late 1987, they put up the Kingdom Come demo, which is where you start seeing like the real Morbid Angel sound come together. Uh, Mike Browning said that. he, he felt David was really, kind of, doing his vocal styles, so, like, David had definitely picked up a lot of what he had originally done with the band, and then run with that, sort of, elaborating, getting more complex, and going into the themes they were all really enjoying, them lyrically, like, lots of anti-Christian stuff, and lots of gory stuff, very much influenced by, like, their taste in horror movies and the occult. So around this time, the band started doing a lot of uh, touring to like small venues around the States, teaming up with bands like Immolation and so on, uh, getting himself a little bit of a following. Eventually, it's caught the attention of the Eric Records, who signed them for their first album, and in 1989, they put out their debut, Altars of Madness. So this was recorded at a pretty fancy studio, uh, uh run by... Tom Morris, who did the engineering, uh, Digby Pearson of Eric Records, is credited as the producer on it. And a uh, classic Dan Seagrave cover art. What I'm personally fond of. I know it's a divisive one, like the circle with uh, hundreds of like swarming faces in it. But yeah, I, I really like it. I've got it as a back patch on my uh, on my battle jacket. So th- this debut album is pretty interesting. Like for the point in time, it must have been incredibly unique. I think one of the real standout things is the lead guitar style. It's really that kind of ultra technical, but very, very influenced by I think like ideas like Slayer were playing around with on like Eights and Raining Blood with that. A lot of the time, like, the guitar having its own rhythm when soloing, doing stuff that kind of goes for a lot of different weird scales. There's, there's a lot of very strange note choices. But overall, like, the main thing from this album is just fast. It's fast and aggressive. Dave Vinson's got this really kind of, like, high snarl to his vocals. The The whole album is just really aggressive. Pete clearly put in the work in terms of his learning double kicks, because the drums are incredibly fast throughout. It's it's just a really solid album, start to finish. Like Particularly, I think, for me, there's a middle point in it with the songs Maze of Torment, Lord of All Fevers and Plagues, and Chapel of Ghouls, which just absolutely brilliant is like some of the great death metal from the the late eighties in terms of like time period because their first album didn't quite come off. Morbid Angel are one of the later bands to get their their debut out out of that kind of classic era, but I think alters of madness well we we know from the popularity of this band now. Still, definitely left its mark, and it's an album that I personally think holds up today, kind of up there with some of the really good ones. Like I've always felt Cannibal Corpse's "Eaten Back to Life" kind of sounds a bit weedy these days. Even Butchers at Birth," like f- for me personally, is lacking something. "Obituary" really, sort of really nailed it on "Slowly We Rot," but a lot of these bands, like their second, third, and fourth album, where they they really nailed it. But because Morbid Angel had you know, put in the work, done like essentially four years of demoing it with the whole first album not quite getting there. This one they were able to put out like such a fundamentally complex bit of music that just set them apart from a lot of other bands. Like, Although I have to say of all their albums this is the one where the songs are most in like a similar vein to each other. There are fun ideas in there. Like the, the, the famous track Chapel of Ghouls has that breakdown in the middle where there's like a load of keyboards over the top of it, like giving it like a, a bit of a sinister horror movie vibe. The songs are very much in the kind of anti-Christian um gory lyrics kind of thing I think again like, like Dave Vinson said his favourite Slayer albums, is Hell Awaits and you can really feel that with track names like Blasphemy and Evil Smells, uh, and then the tracks like Suffocation going for a more just like aggressive gory feel it's probably not my all time favourite album of theirs but it is just totally solid I I'd kind of it can't be faulted in achieving what it, it set out to do Yeah. So, two years later, in 1991, they returned to Morrisan Studio to record their second album, Blessed Are the Sick. You might be starting to notice the trained with uh, letters of the album names. Right from the get go, everything about this album just feels like a step up. Uh, the The cover art they've gone for, this weird old painting of like Satan over this group of like kind of, like, forming together massive bodies. It's a really washed-out colour palette, but, like, yeah, just a very interesting bit of artwork. Like, a really cool, like, intro to the album. Uh, and right from the get-go, you sort of see things being a bit different about this. There's an instrumental interlu- like, intro of kind of feeding back of guitar noise, and then we get the opening track, Fall From Grace, which is... A song that's remained as a live staple for the band, like ever since, really, which is slower than anything on *Altars of Madness*. Uh, The just the whole sound of it is like that bit more doomy and sludgy, and like just heavy as hell by just turning the pace down. This this album, they've certainly like. ...played around with things... ...because it features their slowest material so far... ...but also some of their fastest... ...like track 3 Brainstorm... ...is All Thy Kingdom Come later in the album... ...incredibly fast stuff... ...whereas Blessed Are The Sick... ...the title track way slower again... ...so there's a real range in track lengths in this as well... ...actually like uh, Day Of Suffering... ...that got released as a single... ...was almost like two minutes long... ...and just every way... ...they really stepped up their game as musicians... The, the solos are more impressive and more frantic the the whole tone of the album works so much better as well, it's got a really chunky guitar tone Dave Vincent's vocals as well um, sound a bit more lower and guttural he attributes this to uh, giving up smoking at the time of recording this album the other thing the band introduced on this album that would become a staple of pretty much every release from this point on is musical interludes so we've got, we've got the aforementioned intro but then you've also got like Doomsday Celebration and towards the end of the album Desolate Ways and In Remembrance where they play around with sort of orchestral themes and keyboards and stuff like that we've with this album, they sort of work. Doomsday Celebration fits quite nicely and breaks things up. Um, the ones toward the end are a bit more forgettable. But, you know, it's it's only, like, in total about six minutes of the 40-minute runtime of the album. And it's interesting to see them play around with things. Overall, this is an incredibly, like, experimental album and really cool to see that the band did not settle on just doing the same thing again as their really popular debut. They really pushed the boat out. And I wonder how um, how this album was received at the time. I wonder if people were against the idea of them slowing things down in places. Oh, also, we start to see... Uh, the evolving Dave Vincent fashion sense from looking kind of cool, like, the whole band look very cool in the first album with their, you know, leather jackets or denim jackets and long hair. Uh, On this album, he goes sporting a spiked codpiece in all the uh, band photos, which is an interesting look and definitely a sign of things to come with uh, what would happen with Dave Vincent's fashion choices over the next few years. Sadly, uh, not long after this album was recorded, Richard Brunel was fired from the band essentially for not being good enough. He inducing death he's interviewed and says he he just he wasn't putting enough time in and Trey was just too like complex a guitarist to keep up with. Whenever he was trying to get his head around a new riff, um Trey would have already written three more, and eventually the the kind of the distance between them just led to him exiting the band. So from for the next little while, Morbid Angel would continue as a free piece. Tragically, um, Richard died early last year. Uh, he didn't really do a great deal else in metal after after his time in Morbid Angel, but despite only have appearing on two albums ever, like he certainly left his stamp on the metal world. Um, yeah, like actually quite an incredible legacy considering uh, the, yeah his sort of short time in the genre. Ah, boys,
1: to to to. So many years my
0: So, Morbid Angel were always a band that would tour extensively, and it took them another tu- two years to get back into the studio to record their third album, Covenant. Uh, this was 1993 by this point. They did this album as a free piece, and. Really didn't seem to lose all that much from it. Uh, this time they went back to uh, Tom Morris' studio again, uh, Morris and that is, but uh, got Fleming Rasmussen in for production, engineering, and mixing. Most famously, the guy who did all that work for Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and, and Justice for All. Despite that, though, I've always thought. Covent has a bit of a weird sound to it. It's sort of, the drums are pumped massively up in the mix, like the kicks and snare are so big sounding in this. But then the guitars are quite muddy by comparison to what they were on Blessed. Now Trey has always been someone to massively experiment with with his gear. Like he he's done all sorts of interesting stuff to get the various tones he's worked with throughout the years. Like I've, I've heard stuff like even as far back as in the Blessed the Sick Days, he was doing stuff signal splitting. He would spend ages throwing. All sorts of effects on his leads, like, phases, delays, all this kind of stuff, which which makes his leads sound totally unique. But it does mean in many ways, like, when he was touring in the lead-up to this album, he did have quite a fragile sound. There was all sorts of possible issues. So, before they hit the studio, Morbid Angel had, like... Got out around the world. They they toured Europe extensively, so they were be really becoming quite quite seasoned professionals and really honing their craft. They dropped a few of the gimmicks from the early days, like uh, I forgot to mention earlier, but like Mike and Trey in some of those earlier gigs used to like cut themselves on stage with razor blades, the very black metal move. And Pete used to have a giant like inverted crucifix on his uh, drum riser. Uh, it's kind of funny because. A lot of those albums that bit before black metal so it's really interesting to see kind of all those elements that eventually led into black metal being what it was like i'm sure as much as a lot of those norwegian bands at the time probably decried them as being awful and generic must have taken some influence from those early morbid angel days along with you know the obvious ones like sarcophago so the band hits the studio for this third album covenant and once again they are messing with their sound. They're trying something a bit different. With this uh, album, they've they come out the gate really fast with the, the single Rapture is absolutely punishing. Uh, Trey's leads like all over the place in this one. Like as well, like even structuring the song, there's just loads of like little bursts of solos. The the drumming is Furious, like, the riffing is immensely complex. Rapture's a song I've heard as well, like, thousands of times, but I'd have a real trouble sort of trying to describe the exact structure of it back to you. Dave Vinson's vocals, once again, have got even more low and guttural. But the thing I always like with Dave's vocals approach is it's very clear, you really get a good sense of the lyrics when he's doing it. Many have cited him as a massive vocal influencer. Um, Mikhail Ackfeldt of Opeth reckons he's the best vocalist in death metal. Angela Gosso cited him as a huge influence on her style. And I think with albums like this, you can really see why is, you know, such a legendary talent in terms of the death metal vocal style. The album just keeps up an absolutely brutal pace as well. The the second track, Pain Divine, has, like to my ears, like, ever so slight elements of early black metal in there. Just, there's kind of an evil to it. Uh, and then World of Shit, Promised Land, is just absolutely punishing. The, the, the interesting thing with this album as well is we start to see... That real change in Morbid Angel's lyrical direction, where um, they would focus on maybe some like more historical stuff, with Lions Den uh, being about like you know Romans feeding Christians to lions. There's there's an interesting actual mocked up photo in the uh, the centerfold of the lyric book of of that. Um, And yeah, like more spiritual, more occult stuff, less of the gore and violence, there's no mention of, yeah, like zombies or your traditional, you know, fuck Christianity kind of stuff. One bad way this manifests is the cover is bloody abysmal. It's meant to be like a load of occult items, like, as a photo of, like, a candle and a book with Covenant and Morbid Angel's, like, logo written on it. And, yeah, it just... It looks like a really bad, like, prop photo from some teenage goth movie. But there is some interesting stuff. Both on the disc and the back of the album, there's some woodcuts of... uh, like, villagers meeting uh, a kind of Satan-like figure. Interestingly enough, and I was always really pissed off about this, uh, The I think it's the one from the back of the album, Machine Head used on the blackening, and it kind of felt like someone should have stopped them along the way and said, so actually, quite a successful band's already already used this. But anyway, one of the odd standout tracks on this, well, overall, it's a track that sort of you'll notice when listening to this It's track seven angel of disease feels very weird on this album because it's a i think it's a track from their like early demo days they sort of resurrected for this album and it sounds like a track of alters of madness just dropped into the middle of this and you can see the way everything's changed with their sound like when they with this tracks like sandwiched between blood on my hands and sworn to black like the band has really gone through quite an evolution and this this track kind of feels like more thrashy more kind of proto death whereas the the meat of this album is truly brutal death metal towards the end of the album as well we get another quite interesting change uh we have the instrumental nah matu which is kind of fine um Largely the trend with most Morbid Angel instrumentals. But then we get God of Emptiness, the real slow one for this album. It starts off very much kind of, you know, Fall From Grace style, like the kind of slow, kind of plodding, heavy riffs with David Vincent's really guttural uh, screams over the start of it. But then in the second half, clean vocals for some very low very kind of gothic clean vocals. So the first the first time David had used this style in the band. Now this was like such a I must have been such a divisive thing at the time, even to the point where there is a Beavers and Butthead clip of them watching this video where they're initially really impressed by David Vincent's growling, but then it gets to the clean vocals and they both start really laying into it and taking the piss. Overall though I like, I liked it. I, I do I do enjoy the the way they change up the sound on this album. I think God of Emptiness is a real excellent track in my personal opinion i do think covenant is the strongest of all the morbid angel albums and it's not my favorite production it's probably like fifth or sixth down the list in terms of that but it's just got the riffs like this album is just completely full start to finish absolutely brilliant really memorable riffs like they must have such trouble choosing a single from this because any one of these tracks bar maybe angel of disease is a perfect standout to sell the album quite a few years ago now i saw them touring with i think it was with tim young on drums but with david vinson back fronting them and they played this album in full and that was an absolutely perfect set list just this start to finish just absolutely fantastic like most bands when doing the album in full thing it can be quite quite dodgy, quite a high-risk thing. I remember seeing Vader doing Black for the Blind in full, and it was fun, but I definitely got the sensation halfway through. It's like, this set would be better if they were you know, playing some of their more popular stuff. Whereas, no, Morbid Angel doing this, absolutely perfect. And yeah, like for me, I'd always say Covenant's the perfect start point for getting into this band. So realistically, Tutorial Probably, they needed uh, another guitarist and were joined by Eric Ruton, who had recently left Ripping Corpse, who are a fantastic old extreme metal band. Uh, if you've not heard it, definitely pick up their album Dreaming With The Dead. Absolutely unique, truly brilliant, incredibly kind of technical, kind of melding of like later thrash and early death metal, really brilliant stuff. So the Eric you'll probably mostly know from uh, his Irish studio work recording but such bands as Cannibal Corpse, Eiffel Duath, Vital Remains and his own death metal project Hate Eternal who yes again another death metal project that have taken certainly ideas from those like starting bands like Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel and Run with them and take them into kind of other extreme realms. But yeah, he seemed like a perfect fit for the band at this point in time, like just bringing their very extreme level of guitar playing to this band. The next album they put out, though, Domination, is an interesting one. It's. I'd say, barring an album we'll get to later on, it is definitely their biggest flirtation with accessibility. Like, the song structures, for the most part, are far more um, traditional and easy to follow. We get an increase of Dave's clean vocals in tracks like "I to See, Ears to Hear, with Where the Slime Live. It's, you know, it's got some of that... Uh, energy of the earlier songs like the fall from grace kind of style slower stuff but just that bit more accessible barring the opening track dominate this album is not like extremely brutal um there's really interesting ideas and in it the the instrumental melting I quite enjoy and the, the the closing track to the am hate work is quite an interesting one it experiments with like a lot of ideas of bringing like sort of almost classical elements in there in many ways actually it's, it I would see it as like morbid angels spiral architect them doing something very out there and like interesting compositionally like we' moving away from the kind of the more brutal kind of stuff uh but then then you've got like, a proper stand-up from this album, Dawn of the Angry, is just a really punishing, to-the-point song. But the riffing in it, as much as I love it, definitely flirts with that kind of, like, groove metal sound, you know, the kind of what Machine Head would go on to do soon or, like, what Pantera had been doing. There's elements of that in there. They get a kind of continual push down that uh, more occult, spiritual... uh, lyrical direction but and and some really strange stuff as well like uh caesar's palace is a particularly standout track with its chorus of hail caesar over and over again i think it's a a song about like caesar coming back to life 2000 years later it's it's a weird one and like despite like apart from hate work i do feel the second half of this album sort of lets it down slightly it doesn't keep up the kind of the quality of the earlier half of the album. I know it's an extremely divisive uh, album. A lot of people think like like Covenant is the absolute end for decent Morbid Angel. Personally, though, I, I've got a real soft spot for Domination. I, I think it's, although really catchy. It kind of works, and it doesn't fall into the holes a particular later album of theirs, Will. This is is still well and truly a death metal album. It's just incorporating a few more uh, accessible elements. Another thing I have to mention with this, it has a fucking abysmal cover. Uh, Like, everything about the cover is bizarre. It's, like, uh, definitely influenced by... That early Photoshop era has an amazing cover, uh, the color palette of pink, mauve, and lime green, and just like this really odd, warped kind of uh, symmetrical photo of trees and clouds, but in a really washed-out color scheme. But as bad as the government cover is, this is easily, I think, their worst album cover. It's it's hard to look at, but that's you know overly harsh. I guess there's not. A cover only has so much importance to to a release yeah like th- this was definitely an interesting chapter for the band but it would lead to problems uh on the, the tour for this album, Dave Vincent before heading out on tour had decided he'd had enough of the band. He he wasn't enjoying their, their musical direction at this point in time, and in many ways said he just wasn't enjoying doing death metal as much anymore. He felt he wasn't getting the same reaction off audiences anymore. But in an incredibly professional move, he kept this totally to himself, did the full tour, and then left the band when he got back home. But you know, this would put the band in an interesting position. Vincent's vocal work had been so fundamentally important to their sound, like, getting lower and more brutal on each album, like, his vocal performance on Domination is is absolutely excellent, some of those long, drawn-out screams he does sound fantastic, and even experimenting with interesting ideas, like putting that kind of Delay on his vocals throughout where the slime lives to give it more of an odd gurgle. Also, I haven't really mentioned this up to now, he's a really solid bass player. Like, he, the, you watch some of those old live videos, he does really complex stuff on the bass. Sadly, near enough all four of these albums, the bass is dropped very low in the mix, so you can't really hear him that well. And he's fighting for space with. Normally, three other like incredibly gifted musicians, like just Pete's drum performance on any song is going to take up so much space. But yeah, so the the band had to work out a way of continuing on without him. We also got a few other interesting releases bef- around this time. like just before Domination came out, we got the Layback Remixes EP, which features a remix of Sworn to Black and a remix of God of Emptiness. Personally, these do absolutely nothing for me, but they do show, like, sort of Trey's influence at the time by some, like, more electronic influences, stuff that might creep into the sound a little bit later on. Also, like, from that tour where David left the band, we get the Entangled in Chaos live album, which, yeah, just a really solid live album, fantastic, like, set list, um, covering, like, a lot of their. Their kind of eras, like more, I'd say, more focused on the the, the first album than any other. But there, there's there's stuff throughout from from all of them, and, and ending the set with "Dominate," which is a pretty solid way to end any set. But interesting placement for for that. Definitely, if you're a fan of the first four albums, this is you know essential listening and a good capstone to that period of the band. With you know those. Uh, those three central guys. One thing I've got to mention about the, uh, Domination era, which is just a fun story, is at one point, they want Eric wanted to do a special release of the album with kind of a pack of, like, like how Slayer done the, the blood pack release of Raining Blood. They wanted to do a similar thing, but with, like, a slime pack. So, like, that green, like, uh, slime, like, you know, you can get as a kid to play with. So... They had real trouble finding a place to do this, eventually got like some some American distributor they didn't really know to put this product together for them. And when they got hold of it at the pressing plant, they discovered that the American producer of the slime had gone for a much cheaper substitute that was not that was totally toxic and acidic. And when the the guy running the kind of the plant packaging it up with the CDs uh, held it to his chest it burnt a hole through his um through his jumper so you can see there's like pictures of this like toxic slime online uh, a whole batch of <laughs> a whole batch of this had to be um thrown away because it was far too dangerous so this brings us up to 1998 the band uh, had lost Eric Rutan by this point so we're down to just Pete on drums, and Trey on guitar, and they really needed a guy who could do bass and vocals, and a guy who had to fill the impossible shoes of Dave Vincent. So for this, uh, yeah, being given this unfortunate task was Steve Tucker, who played bass and did vocals for the two bands Ceremony and Merciless Onslaught back in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. Now, Steve's certainly a different vocalist to Dave Vincent, um... Like his his approach is far more of like a, a, an aggressive barking. He, his while his voice is still quite clear, it doesn't quite have the the extreme low end uh, David had, especially on those the last two albums, Covenant and Domination. But Stevie's is a uh, f- like properly good death metal vocalist, and his ability to play very complex bass work while doing it sets him as just the perfect person to to fill this role. Although. There are many fans out there who feel Morbid Angels should have disbanded at the, the four-album point. But they, they they pushed on, and in my humble opinion, it was definitely for, for the better, particularly with what would follow here. Uh, so they get their fifth proper studio album, Formulas Fatal to Flesh. On this album, you can see the band really wanted to push things away from everything they've been doing on domination this album is probably of all of theirs the most experimental the most complex the most aggressive sometimes to its detriment like it's it's a it's a difficult listen this album there's um like in the Choosing Death book there's a lot about the the difficulty Steve had with the lyrics so he was not only was he filling Dave Vincent's shoes up to this point Dave Vincent had been the primary lyric writer on this album uh, Trey took over lyric writing duties and very much wanted to base this album in a lot of his philosophical readings he'd been getting really into at that point in time and this means that the lyrics are so cumbersome and complex throughout and often incredibly fast. Like, the lyric book is so dense to this one and I think Steve really struggled to kind of still have an aggressive forward presence while while trying to to get his his tongue around so many syllables and such complexity, on top of the fact that the, the music's the most intense it's ever been. This album is, for the most part, extremely fast, Like, and the strong structures have got more complex than they've ever been before, or not that they were ever simple. But overall, it's a really interesting listen. Again, much, um, much like Covenant, it's a bit of an odd one sound-wise. I'm... Personally, I'm not a big fan of the guitar tone on this album, but I think a lot of what it lacks on that front, it does make up for in interesting stuff. Like, there, there is some great ideas in here. But, for example, actually, we get the longest song I think Morbid Angel have ever recorded on this album in Trek 11 Invocation of the Continued One. It's like a 10 minute epic that goes through all these different movements. It's got like your, your kind of slow, uh, kind of doomy Morbid Angel part, then you kind of really intense, like, hyper-complex moment, and then the end of the song goes into this almost, like, almost, like, hard rock Lee guitar moment where Trey does one of his, like, by his standards, incredibly melodic solo, and it, it's this really great kind of closure to the album. Now, this, this leaves the problem, actually, with this album, more so than anything else, is... The there's five instrumental tracks on it. Like it's not quite testimony to the ancient levels of too many instrumentals, but it's getting close. Track six, disturbance in the great slumber. It just feels totally unnecessary and does not fit between Chamber of Dis and Uma Lahari. Like it, the the, the transition is just awful. It feels like a song from a different album's been dumped in there with its kind of like orchestration between these two really brutal tracks. Uh, then we get him to a gas giant before Invocation, which kind of works, but... Uh, like Actually, that one I'm fine with. That That much like the end of Covenant sort of works, like preparing you for something weird happening at the end. The real problem comes with the last three tracks. They're, it's about five minutes worth of music of just... It feels like three random bonus tracks of them trying all sorts of stuff. Like, The Trooper with its weird kind of, like, electronica influence. Uh, Yeah, it just, like, none of them work. And this album would be so strong just ending on that massive guitar solo payoff of Invocation. I have no idea why they went for that. But overall... It's, it is a really good follow-up to the Day of era because it shows them forging new ground, doing something different, you know, validates their continued existence without a key member.
1: Hi, they are they bring the word I get to call.
0: So, next up, we get 2000's Gateway to Annihilation, and this is, is an interesting album, because I think in many ways it's kind of a forgotten one. I mean, I only bought it, I think, at the start of last year. I'd never heard it up to that point, and because it's 2000's death metal, like, this, this was a genre kind of on the way out there, which makes this one so interesting, because... It's actually one of Morbid Angel's strongest releases. It's an incredibly good album. From the get-go, they've lost some of the kind of almost obfuscating elements of Formulus Flatel to Flesh. This is more to the point. The structures are catchier, but not in that domination way. There is no flirting with... uh, kind of groove metal here. This is straight ahead extreme death metal and still with lots of cleverness thrown in there but at this point Morbid Angel are such seizing musicians like they can throw that in while still keeping the catchy kind of groove at the center. Uh, Eric Rutten rejoins the band for this one and also contributes to the the songwriting process. Uh, Steve at this point as well is starting to write his own lyrics and Writing a few of the songs as well, um, he's involved in writing uh, "Summoning Redemption," which I think is an absolute like standout from this album. So the album starts with like uh, a little weird instrumental to bring things in, and then we get the aforementioned "Summoning Redemption," this seven-minute-long epic that like hits you first off with the massive guitar tone. This this album is the best I think Morbid Angel's ever sounded. I absolutely love the guitar tone on it it's really punishing there's a lot of cool stuff in it as well uh with like doubling up of vocals in places giving a kind of like steve definitely has a bit of a glen Bentonisms about him when doing that also uh actually i don't think it's doubling up vocals it's this was true the last time as well and i forgot to mention it trey is doing some backing vocals and he's like adding a, a kind of higher pitch scream to things whereas steve's got the more low traditional death metal vocal and it's just a really nice uh dual vocal approach like uh particularly in the track secured limitations It just sounds really fantastic in the mo- middle where trey's vocals come in the guitar work is actually some of my favorite as well there's uh like, sort of a real melodic nature to some of the solos. If you're familiar with the band Mithras, this album is the, like, this album is very much the mithras kind of sound, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, the the way the lead guitar sound, that kind of really spacey, but still melodic, yet complex and technical kind of thing they got going on. The the solo in Summoning Redemption, particularly, is absolutely brilliant. I'm not sure who's responsible for it, Trey or, or Eric, but both of them have that interesting thing that's very much a staple of the Morbid Angel sound, of lots of effects, lots of cool ideas thrown at it. Something else I want to mention is the cover is fucking brilliant. After a few dodgy ones, they go back to Dan Seagrave, the guy who did their the first album Altars of Madness. And the covers to get with Annihilation is this massive piece of artwork of this like, apocalyptic landscape of this giant spike structure covered in skulls and spikes, that's all twisting around this this central kind of vortex point it's very, in many ways, reminiscent of the, uh like, your epic 40,000 artwork for the old, like, the old Warhammer days. But just with a a kind of a more extreme apocalyptic edge, those, like, twisted landscapes with a giant kind of uh, vortex going through them look absolutely incredible. And a really fun thing about this is the suffocation album souls to deny from 2004 has like the other half of this artwork it's like sort of the same like the same ideas sort of reimagined but like a more deadened version of it just really really cool stuff like and it is nice to see like mortal angel just getting the artwork right to fit with the uh the really interesting stuff they're doing Production on this album's done by uh, Jim Morris, which might explain why it just—it just sounds so good. But yeah, I, like, it's just an album where they got everything right. They they got the tone right. The songwriting is is very to the point, but still interesting experiments in the right places. Notably as well, there are only two instrumentals on this, lasting under two minutes in total, and it really serves the album well. And towards the end, we just have like. Two, two more tracks in the form of "I" and "God of the Forsaken," which both feel like they could be more singles. So it's just, it's just packing in good riffs and catchy songs right to the last minute, but has just the right level of punishment and brutality to it. And Steve Tucker really feels more on top of the vocals in this one because he's writing more of the lyrics and so on. He isn't having these like really complex phrasings and so on to get around that he had been in in some of the earlier material on the previous album. He, he really sounds like he's in charge and knows what he's doing on this one. And yeah, it's a shame it's, it's sort of buried by time because 2000 just wasn't a time when people were really giving a shit about death metal. Like, new metal was popular at this point. But it's a real real gem and if if you're a fan of Morbid Angel but have always missed this album I'd highly advise going back and getting a copy This brings us to 2003 and their seventh album, Heretic, which, for, in my humble opinion, is the start of the decline for the band. So, Eric Rusin's once again left them, so they're recording this as a three-piece, like the same line-up as Formulas. But everything with Heretic just sounds a bit off by comparison to the previous album. The guitar has this annoying scratchiness to it. The drums sound really artificial. There's something very hollow about all the hits in it. I don't... Yeah, this is an album so... After I got into the, like, initial four as a teenager, I thought, I'll give Steve Tucker a go, and I bought Heretic. And I have listened to this album so many times trying to crack it, and it just always leaves me cold. Like, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. There's some really solid songwriting, tracks like God of Our Own Divinity and Praise the Strength are really cool and do have some, like, catchy moments. But just overall, this is a real drudge of an album. Um... And it's, uh, there's some real stupid stuff in it as well. Like, again, way too many instrumentals. Like, we get to the the end of the album, like sort of the end of uh, Within My Enemy, track 10, and then there is a further, like, ton of instrumentals. Like, I think there's, like, about 20 that are just kind of tiny bursts of silence and then some more weird ideas of... Like, and st- Stuff like terror of Mechagodzilla, lava, and it's all just like it feels like Trey throwing a lot of his kind of like electronic ideas in there. There's the the song Drum Check, which is just a silly like drum solo thing. It all feels like the band like pissing around at the end of the album, which. Like, save it for an EP, save it for somewhere else. I like personally I like my album to have a kind of pure runtime. I want it to end on a big high point. I don't want it to get to the last like, you know, get for the last interesting track and be like, oh here's a load of other rubbish. Like put it on a second disc or something. There's something about having all that in the runtime that just really puts me off. And as well, it's a really bad album cover, this kind of like weird gold image of like kind of sumerian looking god with all these kind of like photoshop filters and effects on it and this really rubbish fire effect it's it's one of those albums where it is in essence a perfectly solid death metal album but given that we're in 2020 and there's so many bands doing stuff i just have no idea why you'd ever pick up and listen to Heretic again possibly I'm being overly harsh to it I know it does it does certainly have its fans and you know if it was the, an album to just to keep the band ticking over and so long it certainly did that like there's some cool stuff I guess like I guess solo from Carl Sanders on it it was quite nice you know show solidarity with Niall like a relatively up and coming band back in of. Free. This is before they'd even got Annihilation of the Wicked out. And I think, like, you know, Niall had been good friends with Morbid Angel for their entire career. Like, Carl Sanders had uh, been hanging out of the house with them back before Alters of Madness was recorded. So, that's really nice to have him involved and so on. I'm kind of feeling, in hindsight, I've been overly harsh on this. Possibly give it a listen and, you know, take, give, have your own takeaway from it. But for me, it's an album I've tried with and it just never landed like the six before it did.
1: victory Praise the force Dead looking crock Embrace the strength The sacred power Praise the strength The dawn of reckoning See the raptor Of those opposing. Be one in voice Enchant the mantra Feel the force
0: So following Heretic, uh the band would leave eric records their long time label because of poor sales and then feeling that the, the label hadn't pushed it enough like this one sold like 20,000 copies versus alters 500,000 now i don't know if that's on eric or not i think that's just very much part of the landscape like who was really interested in old school death metal in 2003 though the revival was a long way off and uh, and that that kind of surge the following Nile and Necrophagus was still a year or so away. Interesting enough, there is video of a very awkward appearance by Trey on Headbanger's Ball, in which he mainly talks about his Quake Free clan. Um which is definitely well worth looking up. I might share share a link to the YouTube clip of that in uh, in the notes for this. But yeah, like so interesting point in time for the band. Now, you probably all know what's coming now, uh, not long after this, they'll part ways with Steve Tucker as Mr. Dave Vincent rejoins the band after he is... Um, so in the meantime, he'd been out with his, his wife, Jen, uh, in the band Jenna Tortures, doing a kind of like shock rock kind of thing. Not, not really for me. I've never, never massively uh, listened to it. But uh, they would tour extensively. You could do quite a few years between this and their next album. And, you know... People have their hopes up. Like, I, many of you would have seen there's some good footage from back in, I think, 2006 where Dave Vincent's uh, the aforementioned interesting evolution of fashion sense. He's, um, he's dyed his hair all black. He's got this weird, like, soul-patch beard and is wearing this black PVC, um, like, shirt thing with a giant pentagram on. So already there should have been some warning flags that... We might be getting some interesting stuff coming in the near future. But th- that vacuum performance, you go and watch it. Fucking fantastic. The band are, are really on fire. Um, so so they recruit a f- fourth member to the band in the form of guitarist Destruck Four, who had previously been playing in Cyclone with former Emperor members Samoff and Trim, and also the excellent uh, Mirkaskog uh who put out, like, a fantastic album in 2000 called Death Machine. The band name's spelled M-Y-R-K-S-K-O-G. Well worth checking out if you want some really punishing, sort of blackened, brutal death metal. So, in the run-up to their eighth studio album, things are looking very exciting. We've got a kind of revitalized lineup. line-up. Uh, you know... There was a lot of positive thought going into this. Um, but then the real big warning flag Pete quits the band and is replaced in the recording by ultra session musician Tim Young, who, you know, has been on so, like, helped out with so many bands as a live musician, as a guest player, like, absolute phenomenal drummer. So, again, this should have still worked. So in 2011, we get the eighth Morbid Angel studio ad- album, *Illud Divinium Insanus*, and my fucking god, were we not prepared for this? I remember being glow like, with Dave Vincent back in the lineup. I remember at the time this came out being really hyped for it. Uh, there was so much press for it, and so on. It was released in *Seasons of Mist*, which you know at the time had a much bigger sort of distribution. Back in 2011. Death metal was right back on the rise again. It was a popular genre again. We, we were ready for another classic Morbid Angel lineup made with some revitalized energy getting like destruct foreign into like some new great energy in the band. But my fucking god, this is a disaster. I won't harp on it for too long because we it's one of the most famously hated extreme metal releases ever. But it is just. Baffling. From the first proper song, too extreme. You you know there is going to be problems. There's these proper like Rob Zombie-esque electronic influences throughout. Like the the track, track ten, radical is baffling, um, with its, like, Dave Vincent's, like, over electronic beat chanting, kill a cop, kill a killer a cop, and, and then just some of the worst lyric writing the band's ever come up with. Like, it feels so weird of, like, sort of Dave rejoining the band, and, like... Sort of going in this direction with them, like, completely changing their sound. Lyrics like, we're living hardcore and radical, we'll always be mechanical and animal. Like, what? This is such a departure from what they usually did. And, like, tracks like Destructos versus The Earth slash Attack it is more baffling electronic influence and stuff. It just feels like such a complete departure for the band. In a similar time as well to where, like, um would massively offend their fans with The Unspoken King trying to bring in, like, very weird influences. Like, if you're a band like this where, you know, you've been out of the game, like, this this album was eight years after the last release, the, you know, kind of underwhelming heretic, why on earth they thought... Just this direction change would be what the fans want. Like the the, the, the four-mentioned tracks like Too Extreme and Radical are just awful. There there is some moments of like just fairly average Morbid Angel moments in there, like Blades of Baal or Nevermore are not not bad songs as such, but essentially I remember seeing a review of this that scored it as like Five tracks going, like, five out of ten, slightly mediocre Morbid Angel got a death metal. The other six, like, two out of ten, like, really bad Rob Zombie worship. Now, immediately, this album got a total critical panning, and the band very quickly descended into blaming each other for it. Trey said it's entirely Dave Vincent's influence, and he forced Radical to be on the album it's all claimed that, like, the writing for this is why Pete left the band. I don't really know who to blame for it, because I know Trey has that big um, influence from the kind of electronic or of things, and might well have been trying to bring that in and now pass the buck while, while this is kind of hated. But essentially, this, this is kind of the end for Morbid Angel in many ways. Like, we... The band sort of not did a bit more touring after that point, um, but very quickly fell apart. Dave Vincent and uh, Tim Young went off with uh, what was it I am evil? Am I evil? Uh, I am evil. Whatever his his other project doing those kind of songs and. Trey sort of then, you know, not too much longer later would reunite with Steve Tucker, but they, they'd never have Pete back in the band, and it, to my mind, this is the end of what I'd see as true Morbid Angel. Now, maybe I'm being an arsehole with that, like, they, you know, they should be able to continue on with the name, I'm and glad, I'm glad they're doing something with it. But sort of recovering from the absolute disaster was that. We did get uh, 2017's Kingdom Disdained, which uh, is a fine album. I I thoroughly, like, I, it just didn't land with me. Much like Heretic, I, I had the same sort of reaction of, uh, I gave it a lot of time, but I, I never, never found it really settled. But, you know, it's a true death metal album. It's definitely um, one that was very much done for the fans like trying to you know recapture a lot of what the classic Morbid Angel sound was and you know I I, I think I think they did a, a pretty solid job i just not a big fan of the mix and yeah it's just something I'll never really revisit so that about does it for my coverage of Morbid Angel they're still continuing on with Steve and Trey and you know I'm fully open minded to the idea they might well have a solid live out uh, like solid uh, studio release again at some point in the future. But irrelevant of that, they have left a legacy of I for my money at least six absolutely kind of essential death metal albums, like all the way from Altisima through to Gateways of Annihilation. If you're someone who enjoys death metal and you know loves the bands influenced by it, all all six of these albums are well worth your time. It's really incredibly strong material throughout and it's amazing watching a band like that who were able to keep pushing the envelope keep evolving with every subsequent release and you know really held themselves to very high standards the whole thing of not releasing their first album because it wasn't good enough is incredibly commendable in many ways i feel sorry that they were forced to put out uh, abominations of desolation back in 91 because i've heard it it's it's not great like it they, they'd certainly made the right call to, to hold on a year till till alters. Yeah, fantastic discography, truly brilliant band, excellent musicians, that, and that, that constant evolution is what I really want from bands, someone who can keep finding a way to push the envelope for their sound. Uh, yeah, and possibly unfair to harp on that one album so much. I guess it's just an interesting point in metal history having kind of such a uh, universally despised album but that that should speak to in many ways the legacy the band already had that the people were that invested in them coming back like those those six albums I mentioned seven if you there are big fans of heretic out there like that led up to it that led up to that much excitement and also I I, I know a lot of people really enjoy the the latest kingdoms disdained it's Just personally, not not for me quite so much. As I say, I'll still give the next one they do a go. But yeah, if if you're new to Morbid Angel, definitely go through, check these out. I'd probably advise starting with Covenant, but um, Gateways might also be another good entry point at this point in time. So yeah, um, definitely hit me up if... uh, if you have just gotten to them for the first time, that I'd be really interested to hear. So you can contact me, Phil's Breakfast Metal uh, at gmail.com, search for Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook or at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, and yeah, let, let me know your thoughts on this. Um, uh, hopefully, I'll be able to do some more episodes with Rob soon. We're planning one um, in the nearish future on uh, doing a similar look like this on Agaloc's history, which I think will be good fun, but it's dependent on Rob getting hold of a microphone so we can do this over Skype uh, during the the current climate. So to close this episode out, I want to do a quick uh, nepotism corner. This is for an incredibly new band, Row of Ashes, from London the UK. I'm aware of these guys because Chris of Punishing Brutality podcast is bass player and vocalist for this band so row of ashes are a like a a power trio of uh, guitarist vocalist drummer bass and vocals and it's just incredibly brutal music it's that genre i never know quite what to call it it's like that kind of incredibly aggressive like I guess slightly post-hardcore, something like that. Just, you know, that really fucking extreme music you get these days where it's there's, like, really distorted, like, properly aggressive, but very emotional vocals, quite groovy riffing, but, like, an immense, like, crushing low end to it, and, like, very distorted guitars, like, everything sounds kind of rough and intense. What I really like about this is like it's a really natural drum sound mixed with these incredibly kind of brutal like guitar tones. Like that the, the temptation for a lot of bands I think would be to overly polish the drum track but keeping this quite quite raw and real sounding works so well for these guys. So this is their their debut release um unbeliever it's it's quite a short album. I, I'm not sure whether they're referring to it as an album or EP. It's like five tracks, about 25 minutes long. But it, it's well worth checking out. There's a lot of interesting ideas crammed into this very small space. Suicide in Slow Motion, the opener, is really just, like, pounding and aggressive throughout. Like, it kicks into gear. With exactly, like setting the kind of tone for the album. But you also get some really interesting uh, moments in this album. The, the sort of the intro to Death By Your Word is far more kind of um, calm and, like, introspective, like, almost quite melancholy in places. And then this is, like, taken to the next level with the the 7 minute and So Shuts The Door, which is far more kind of... Um, far more melancholy, like, and... Really quite bleak sounding in places. The whole of this album has an incredible bleakness. There's quite a... Despite the kind of difference in pacing between songs, there's a very consistent atmosphere and so on. I, the the closer, It's Hard Not To Fill Yourself With Regrets, is a fantastic rager. Probably like the heaviest on the album. and starts with this really ridiculously low bass intro Speaking to Chris, the reason for this is because the band ch- tunes to uh, G standard, which I didn't even know was a thing until this point. Like these absolutely ridiculously chunky strings, like they they really do a fantastic job of the sound, uh, not to make that whole thing turn into like a muddy mush. Like there is there is still a real clarity to the riffing and so on it, without um, without sort of it losing any of the heaviness or yeah becoming that kind of like real muddiness but yeah just an absolutely brilliant uh debut really kind of scary stuff if you're a fan of that um more aggressive, like, hardcore sound, or, like, if you're more into kind of, like, Sludge Doom kind of stuff. There's even elements of, like, the kind of early emo sound there. I mean, really buried, but, like, stuff... There, there seems to be a slight touch of that in that and so shuts the door. I should say with that, I, I mean, before that scene turned into, like, the absolute commercial nightmare it later became. But the, this album's up on Bandcamp. I'll, again, share the, the link in the in the show notes. It's pay what you want, so go pick it up and give it a go. It's you know a really short listen, but just incredibly punishing and bleak. If you want something that has that extremely oppressive nature to it, give these guys a shot, and yeah, definitely go out and support like cool upcoming music like this from the UK.